<coughs> Those of you that know the liturgical calendar are aware that this is the high and holy Sunday of the entire year. It's called Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> the ultimate test is really not the Super Bowl. It has to do with what God can do by his grace in your relationships and in mine. <clears throat> As you know, we need two legs to stand on, to walk on. And half of the things, uh, roughly speaking, that you do in life have to do with activities and tasks. The other half of the things that are important to you, roughly speaking, it could be 60-70% either way, have to do with relationships. The ultimate test of the grace of God in your life is in regard to not so much tasks, but the relationships. The older I get, the more I value my relationships. At age 75, I look back a bit and wish I'd spent more time uh, perhaps uh, invested in relationships as to <clears throat> performing various tasks. Now, this morning I'd like to uh, talk with you about what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 teaches about relationships. As we read through the verses together, uh, hopefully you were picking up on the fact that broken relationships are very hard for you and me, and that those are the ultimate tests in regard to God's sufficient grace in your life, in my life, to restore those relationships. We need his grace to do that. A number of years ago, we had a young lady working in the graduate office at Moody. I noticed after nine months, maybe 12 months, that she was not taking her vacations, her time off. She was from Kansas. And over the few years that she worked with us, she never went home. On holidays, on special occasions, even on her vacation time in the summer, she never went home. After a year or so, uh, I won the privilege of talking with her briefly about wine. She came from a tough home. A lot of pain, a lot of hurt. And she did not want to revisit that place, those people who had brutalized her so. This passage is saying this morning to us that the test of the grace of God in your life and my life is, does it work? Can it do the big things, the tough things, the hard things? Tonight, as we perhaps watch the Super Bowl We'll see a direct contrast to it and the scriptures. The Super Bowl is all about brutality. Who's the fastest? Who's the most skilled? Who's the meanest? Who's the most brutal? And in the Super Bowl, we have the summation of our society, our culture. The number one religion in America and perhaps around the world is sports. Because it's our chance to identify with those that are the champions. And that are better than other people. It's the great put-down. Whereas when Jesus Christ comes into your life and my life, he really 
flip things upside down or right side up and humbles us and begins to work on our capacities to help us to relate to other people without offending them or how to say I'm sorry will you forgive me or I love you I forgive you and so this morning we're going to be talking about how God's grace restores broken relationships and how badly both I and you need these things. Well, this passage that we've read together says three things about this unusual power. The first three verses speak of the fact that we need to receive God's grace, to not reject it. Go back with me to verse 1. Working together with him, then... We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Hmm. You know, it's possible for uh, someone here this morning to have put a million dollar check in the offering. Uh, it's a miracle, I know. On occasion, that does happen. Someone gives a million dollar check. And in the office, that can be put on the shelf or in a drawer. You know, God can give Jesus Christ. He can offer forgiveness for our sins. He can offer us life. That doesn't mean the check gets cashed. God can give. Verse 1 encourages you and me to not negate it so that it becomes vain. He talks about three ways to do this. Picking up in verse 2, it's really all about relationship. He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and I love the fact that the ESV has cleaned up a little bit on the NASB and the King James by recognizing that this is an articulate uh, statement, what we have here. It says, In a favorable time. This is an authorist rending, rendering. I listened to you in a day of salvation. I have helped you. It took the definite articles out of this verse, and rightly so, because it can come day after day after day. Any day that has quality in it is a day of salvation. And the term here, soterion, does not just fairly speak about becoming a Christian, that Getting started with Christ, that's an important day, and we call that getting saved or a day of salvation. But the second day and the third day, and every day following is important to you and me, for that is a day of sanctification, of God continuing what he began on day one in your life and my life. And so in verse 2, it's a favorable time. I listen to you. In a day of sanctification, this should perhaps read here. I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. And they put the definite article back in there for some reason, but that should read A again. Now is a favorable time. Behold, now is, that should be a day, not the day, of sanctification. Now this passage is talking about God's ongoing work of restoring you and me. Not only to God, 
when sin has intervened, but to one another. Particularly to someone perhaps who's hurt us, or someone who's scarred us, and someone who's left their mark on us for life. Can God help me with that? Can God be sufficient for me in regard to that? Well, yes, indeed he can. He wants to. These verses speak of the source of transformation. Changing your life doesn't come from a quick fix, quick fix in a diet or a seminar, seeing a video, reading a book, getting a degree. It's God's grace. It's what we need. For it alone can transform. These first three verses, he's identifying that it's God's grace that is alone sufficient for the restoration of a broken relationship. I met a wonderful lady a couple of years ago. She's in her mid-60s. And she'd herself also been in an abusive family, scarred by some brothers. There's a family reunion that she had just come from a week or so prior to our uh, chatting back in New York. And she told me about this grand occasion. She walked up to one of these men, one of these brothers, also in his 60s. And she grabbed him and hugged him and kissed him. And because of Christ in her life now, these number of years, she was able to say to him, I want you to know that I have forgiven you for what you did to me. And I love you, and I want you to come to know God and Christ the way that I know him. Leona had been freed from her shame, from her anger. God was restoring her in that broken relationship. Whoa, that is huge. But so important, because with that stigma upon her life, she lived with that every day. Because we don't forget, do we? What do you do with an abortion in your past? What do you do for some ugly thing that someone did or said in your past? You deal with it every day, don't you? God's grace is sufficient. And now Paul is saying, don't turn your back on it. Super Bowl Sunday is significant because it's the, the apex of the year. This is the high and holy Sunday for Super Bowl because it's the good team, the best team. Well, maybe not. That will win. And will be better than all the other teams. And oh, how that feeds the ego. <laughs> and that's my team, by the way, you know. And so as this game is a, a test for the entire year, we've been waiting for it, playing for it for the entire year. This passage, biblically, is in a parallel fashion. The Apostle Paul had, had um, been back to Corinth and run out of town. Uh, his trip back there, not recorded in the book of Acts, he calls a painful visit. You can read about it in the first two chapters of this epistle. He returns back to that trip again, the latter part of chapter 7 and 8, the latter part of the epistle. 
And so those first two chapters and the following last chapters make bookends for this section in the middle, which is about the grace of God. Paul had sent Titus back to Corinth with a painful letter that we don't have in our Bibles. He writes about it here in 2 Corinthians. Actually, 2 Corinthians is 4 Corinthians. We don't have 1 and 3. 3 is called a painful epistle. Paul says, I wrote you a painful letter. And Titus took it back to them. And the reason was that <clears throat> this church that Paul had started... He'd been there for three years. He had ministered, and God greatly used him to impact the lives of people, and they deeply loved him. And some outsiders came in. We call them legalizers. He said religion is important, but you've got to have the right rules. And the rules were performance orientation. They began to undermine Paul's ministry and ask questions about his authenticity and his authority as an apostle. So he made this trip back to Corinth from Ephesus, called a painful visit. And they ran him, figuratively speaking, out of town. He returned to Ephesus and he wrote 3 Corinthians, the painful epistle, which Titus took. And God used that letter to change their hearts, to change their minds. And so when Titus finally comes back to Ephesus, and they meet. Paul begins uh, that center section called the grace section, or the discussion of the new covenant in this epistle beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2. So if you read those first few chapters, you'll understand this transition I'm giving you. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he begins his discussion of how to live the grace of God, how to minister under the new covenant according to grace. And it continues through chapter 7, verse 4. Now, follow me carefully. And what we're saying now, this morning, as we pick up in verse 1, is his last treatment of this whole discussion on the grace of God and living by grace and ministering under the context of grace. Are you with me now? And so you and I, this morning, are visiting the last occasion of his discussion of grace. And in here, he sandwiches the ultimate test. That is, that high-water achievement that the grace of God wants to achieve in your life and my life, and that is to help us with our relationships. Because all of life is involved, involves two things. One is the tasks that we do and the relationships that we have. Just as you and I need two legs to stand, one for tasks. There's work, there's jobs for us to do, right? And there are relationships that we must maintain. And so all of life, the Spirit of God wants to give the grace of God so we can be effective with our jobs, our tasks, and with these relationships. And so now he says, hey, don't treat it in vain. Don't treat it in vain. And there are three ways that we can do that. In verse 4, Paul uses his life as an illustration. He talks about hard times that he went through. Secondly, he talks about his character, the change that God brought in his life, some attributes. And then thirdly, his reputation. And there are actually 29 things that Nathan read for us earlier from these verses. 
And they fall into these three categories. You'll notice he says, beginning in verse verse 4, by the way, verse, verse 3 says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. See, he's reconciling himself now to Corinth. He is allowing God to use him to restore that relationship, that broken relationship with the Corinthians. He says, but as servants, verse 4, servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Now he uses uh, three prepositions beginning here in the middle of verse 4. Notice the next preposition, if you've got ESV, is the little word in. And he lists nine types of hardships. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. This is the first index he gives us on his life. Paul says, uh, God's grace has no extent. Uh, life is a battle. The ministry is a battle. Uh, that's why we need grace. If life wasn't a battle, we wouldn't need the grace of God. We wouldn't need God. And so God loves some, leaves some challenges for you and me. And he gives us uh, an index here to our hardships. And that you and I have a choice in any one of these hardships to turn from God's resources back to our own resources. To turn from Him and to turn to our own thinking, our own cleverness, our own perseverance, our own strength, our own macho-ness. The kinds of things that will be exhibited tonight on the football gridiron. That's index number one. Having to do with hardships that you and I don't want to be in. The neighborhood, or in the family, or in the office, or the shop. I mean, there are people there who do things and say things, and I don't want to be with those folks. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. What does God want? Is God's grace sufficient for you and me in those times? Paul leaves this index as a, a way to fast, fast uh, access his life to check him out. He wants, it to, he wants us to check him out. For Paul was the, the big and the classic sinner. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 says that he was the chief of sinners. And that God left him in hardship so that God might exhibit in him the patience of Christ so that those who were to believe could look upon Paul and see Christ's patience in him. Wow, what a statement. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Hardships. And so when you and I could leave the check uncancelled, uncashed, just by turning belly up in a time of turmoil, a time of heartache, and say, God, you're not sufficient. Because, God, you're not doing anything or you're not doing what I want you to do. I'm going to take things in my own hands and I've got to fix this mess. We do what Saul did. King Saul, a handsome, tall man, gifted, filled with the Spirit of God at one time, turned his back on God. Received God's grace in vain. Solomon did the same thing. A wise man gave us Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, a Song of Solomon, 
My wife and I are so impressed with the book of Proverbs. We read it every month, one chapter every day. We've been doing this for over 30 years. We still haven't hit the bottom of the depths of the book of Proverbs. What a wonderful, wonderful, inspired, inspired book, the book of Proverbs. But Solomon did what Saul did, receiving the grace of God in vain. The second test that our index that Paul gives us begins in verse 6. He's talking about his traits or his qualities that God brought into his life. Look how different he is now than what he was back when he was a Pharisee. And the preposition is by now. It gives us nine words. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Another list of nine items, just an index. Paul is saying that we need God's grace. Don't turn your back on it for the changes that you and I want in our lives. As he helps us to think differently and behave differently. Not the assertion of the flesh. The third canon begins in verse 8, and the preposition is through here. Through honor and dishonor. Notice he gives us a couplet nine times here discussing this contrast. But his reputation, Paul said, boy, I've got, I've got so many reputations. I, so, some people see me one way and other people see me another way. And Paul says, hey, I'm not worried about it. That's God's problem. Paul was not one who fixed his reputation. He trusted God, he walked with God, and he let God clean up the messes. Let God take the rest and to deal with it. He wasn't concerned so much about how he looked, about his resume, about how he can impress people. Notice these nine couplets, beginning in verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet we are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's the end of the third index. Paul is suggesting here that you and I can make void the grace of God by taking a hold of our reputation, by the impressions that we're creating in the lives of people by the kinds of... Uh, cars we drive or wardrobes we have or the way we spend our money all to make an impression turn it over to him Paul is suggesting because if we don't it's a way of negating grace there's a story an unbelievable story I know it's untrue I'm going to tweak it a little bit and use it this morning it's about a man who was very wealthy and he was um, in his midlife, and he decided to take all of his assets, sell his house, his barns, everything he had, and to, with the cash he got, to invest a, in a pearl that he had seen in a pawn shop, a large pearl. He paid several million dollars for the pearl. He took some other money he had left over, to go on a cruise, a once-in-a-lifetime cruise. 
He had the pearl with him. He told a few people on the cruise ship about the pearl and actually showed it to them. And one day he had the pearl on deck. He was standing at the railing, just relishing the beauty of the pearl and regarding what it stood for primarily. And he was tossing it in the air and catching it as he stood over the railing. I know you're ahead of me. It was on that last catch he missed. And the pearl went to the bottom of the ocean. What if you and I could do that? Cash in our chips. And take everything. Not only our houses, our cars, whatever we've got, our clothing. Cash it in. Even the value of our education. Anything that we've done. Cash it in. And invest it in the pearl. You know, actually, you and I are doing that. All of your assets, you're investing either in the grace of God or in yourself. To negate God's grace. To refuse to take God up on his offers is to lose the pearl overboard. That is, everything you've got, everything you are, everything you value, everything you cherish, goes down. Whoa. Don't negate the grace of God. Now he turns, uh, thirdly and finally, to verse 11 to 13, and raises this gnarly question about relationships. Paul and Corinth had a falling out. And God had changed Paul's heart. And Paul now is an apostle, the man who started the church. He wanted to know about those folks. He says in verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. You're not restricted by us you're restricted in your own affections that is your own emotions your own feelings in turn I speak as to children widen your hearts also now the rest of the passage gives us some echoes of these three points that he's just made let's step down and get one of the echoes in verse in uh, chapter 7 verse 1 since we have these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement every defilement of body and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now notice, here it is again. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We have, uh, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said it before, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. In a broken relationship, what I've got to do is to go back to him, to her, to them, and say, guys, I'm sorry. Will you forgive? I've got to manifest contrition, humility, openness. Not saying no to God's grace. Uh, letting grace, secondly, be implemented in every area of my life. 
all these 27 areas. But thirdly, the key is openness. I had a student years ago who's a practicing homosexual in Las Vegas today. He stood in my office one day and well, actually, while we were sitting, uh, before we stood, he disclosed to me how his father had humiliated him as a young man. He's from northern Michigan, and they burn 30 cords of wood every winter up there. And so during the summer, it was his dad's job, and now this student's job, to bust that wood. 30 cords of wood. That's more than what this stage can hold. Mm. And his dad was a man who could swing an axe and bust wood, a physical man. But he humiliated his son because his son was not the man that his dad was. And so his son grew angry at his father. And actually with all men. He, because he was angry with his father, he wanted to get back at his dad. But he couldn't. Practicing homosexuality is, actually comes out of a deep disposition of anger, of hatred of men. Same way with lesbianism, of prostitution, anger. We stood in my office and he was about to leave and I asked him, I said, if I could promise you that I could help you with the power to forgive your dad, would you do that? I restated to him what I had just said because I wanted to make sure he understood the question. If I could promise you the ability, the help to forgive your father, would you take me up on it? He was quiet for a while. He said, no. No. I reflected to him, you enjoy hating your father, don't you? He said, yeah. Yeah. Openness is marked by being forgiving and being willing to apologize. Openness. Relationship cannot. When we, when we uh, turn to God, we find that He has got an open heart toward us. And He's been waiting for me to open my heart to Him. And the proof that I've been there and I've done that, that my heart is open toward God, is that my heart will be open to you. And even the person that has hurt me. Hear that closely. An open heart toward God and His grace is manifested, is proven by the fact that my open heart will also be open toward those that have crucified Christ, those that have crucified me, to forgive them. And for me to be able to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Hmm. We sang some excellent music earlier. 
about brokenness, about God's grace. Uh, it is pretty well in agreement among men that I know that are in ministry. I'm thinking of men that are prominent in the pulpit. That all of them, I can say all of us, have been broken. But somewhere in the ministry we find that we couldn't do it in the energies of our talent, in the abilities of our gifts, but that we needed God. And that God had to break, God needed to break us. And you can talk to any number of these men, prominent men, whom God is using today. All of them have been broken. I've been pastoring for a couple of years in Fresno, California, years ago now, back in the, in the uh, mid-60s. And the ministry wasn't going the way I thought that it should go. Marilyn had been married for six or seven years. We had uh, two or three children. And uh, there wasn't the growth, there wasn't the dynamic that I wanted. And I was frustrated. And I became desperate because God wasn't answering my prayer. God wasn't changing things. I didn't know what to do. I became more and more frustrated. Eventually, my desperation got deep enough where I prayed one day, God, I need you. And I need my wife and I... I need to be in the ministry for you because I love you and I want to tell people about you and what you can do for us. But God, I am so desperate. I want to, again, if I've not done this, God, turn my wife and my children and my ministry over to you. That they fully belong to you and not me. Lord, my health, my success, my prominence... Anything I've got, Lord, is yours. I'm talk- I was desperate, and I meant this prayer. It's yours, I said. Except, I know you say, yeah, there's a catch here. There was. Except one thing, God, don't take away from me. And that is yourself. Yourself. You see, grace is... Everything that God wants to give you and me, forgiveness of sins, cleansing, the filling of the Holy Spirit, gifts, blessings, life, grace is even God Himself. It is anything and everything that God wants to give an undeserving person who deserves the opposite. That's the key to relationships. That humility, that brokenness. You and I cannot contain quality relationships without the grace of God, without it infiltrating in every venue of your life, my life, and thirdly, without you and me having an open heart, not only to God, but to others. Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning for this unbelievable message that you've given us about your grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ who made it all possible with his death, his life, his resurrection, his presence. Thank you so much for him, Father. You've lifted him up. You love him. 
You cherish him. Thank you for helping us to do the same. We make this prayer now in his name. Amen.